Do you insist on ending every single phone call and conversation with your friends and family and significant other by saying, I love you, so that that's the last thing you ever tell them just in case something bad happens to you? Or are you normal? My name is Kinsey Grant, and I am not normal. What I am, though, is both somebody who loves love and the host of this show, Thinking is Cool, where we promise to make your next conversation better than your last. If you're new here, I'm so glad this is the episode you've come to first. What you're about to hear is like sappy Kinsey level 100, which I think might be me at the top of my game. If you're not new here, welcome back and thank you for being brave enough to return to thinking is cool after I said the words post-coital in last week's episode. I am going off script again today, so I can't promise that I won't say post-coital again, but I don't have any plans or ambitions to do so, so we should be safe. So this show is all about fostering good, thoughtful conversations that push us to think in new ways and reflect and become more curious. An unintended consequence of all of that happening in my own life has been this breathtaking influx of connection. I found that having these deeper conversations with people, even with people with whom I totally disagree, makes me closer to them. To hear someone speak passionately and ask questions and listen with intent is so endearing. And this week, thanks to everyone's favorite Hallmark holiday, is a week to think about love and about what endears us to one another. And I have like some really intense episodes coming out over the next two months, and I want to take this chance to talk about something happy and sappy and lovey-dovey. But because I can't help myself, we're going to do it with a twist. Today, we are not just talking about love. We're learning about how it comes to exist. There are scientifically proven ways to create an environment for love, and it involves doing more than just recreating the final scene from The Parent Trap. Today on Thinking is Cool, the science of love and everything we know about it. Now, before we jump into today's stuff, an interview, some audience commentary, some script-free pontificating, I want to hit briefly on something new. So every week I hop in the feed here and I introduce a concept that I hope will spark conversation for all of you, but I want to do better at following through on those conversation starters. Last week, I released an episode about on-screen sex and nudity and the portrayal of intimacy in media these days that I can sometimes find pretty troubling. Now, my conclusion was twofold. Number one, writers should be good enough to write scripts that don't rely on a young actor's full frontal to get viewers. And number two, people really love to talk about on-screen sex. Imagine that! I received far more feedback than I usually do for this episode, and I want to talk specifically about two pieces of feedback that ended up sparking really interesting conversations for me and listeners who brought them to my attention. First is the idea that euphoria and the plot events taking place within the show are unrealistic. I said that some aspects of the show might feel totally out of bounds for viewers, mostly the heartbreaking addiction, but also the sex and partying and general lack of awareness about the future. A listener, in response to that specific aspect of the episode, asked me what my high school experience was like, and I explained that it was about as vanilla as you could possibly imagine. No real partying, definitely no police chases, no opiate addicts that I knew of. And she pointed out that 
That was my experience, and that experience was singular. It was only mine. She said her experience was actually not that far off from euphoria, and that my identification of what I considered to be plot holes was perhaps instead an instance of my own lived experience limiting me. I think she was right. And all we have to go on is our own lived experience. Mine was really plain, hers was not. But I'm grateful she was willing to share her story so I could understand what I might not be capable of imagining. Now, next up, a listener came to me with an interesting social media inspired perspective. He noticed that a lot of people on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter were saying, Nate Jacobs can get it. Nate Jacobs, of course, being the twisted jock character played by the actor Jacob Elordi in Euphoria. It's interesting, this listener pointed out, that viewers aren't saying Jacob Elordi can get it. They're saying that this character, who is objectively torturous, if not violent, toward the people in his life, can get it. It brings up a lot of interesting conversations about the ways that we co-mingle our interpretations of characters and the actors who play them based on how physical or sexual they are in a piece of film or television, and what it says about the people of the internet that they're thirsting after a sexualized but very bad character. So that's what got me thinking post-episode last week. I hope you will reach out and share what this week's episode inspires within you, in your group chats, at your dinner tables. And with that, let's get things started. As always, nothing is off limits. Everything is on the table. Take it anywhere. And remember, thinking is cool. And so are you. This episode is happening partially because it's Valentine's Day. It's also happening partially because I convinced my boyfriend to do the New York Times now famous exercise titled 36 Questions That Lead to Love. You might have heard of it. It's three sets of increasingly personal questions that are designed to create closeness between the people both answering them. The questions start off easy with things like question five, when did you last sing to yourself or to someone else? Or question seven, do you have a secret hunch about how you'll die? But then they level up in set two to bigger ideas that get closer to the core of who you are. Things like question 15, what's the greatest accomplishment of your life? Or question 18, what's your most terrible memory? Question 24, how do you feel about your relationship with your mother? Now, by the third and final set, you are in deep, and not just in terms of self-reflection, in terms of the person you're sitting across from and the way you feel about them too. You're dealing with questions like, number 25, make three true we statements each. For instance, we are both in this room feeling dot, dot, dot. Question 30, when did you last cry in front of another person or by yourself? Or question 33, if you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone and why haven't you told them yet? These questions were designed by a team of researchers who study closeness and love. They're typically used as a means of fostering a close interpersonal relationship and connection between two strangers in a condensed amount of time, so that said researchers can then get to the meat of their work by learning how two close people interact with one another. It's a means of accelerating connection and intimacy for two people who are both committed to doing that. And it works. I laughed and I cried and I blushed. And then upon completing these 36 questions with my boyfriend, I felt closer to him than I had at any point in our, at that point, seven month relationship. Intimacy and connection, these gigantic prerequisites for love can be engineered in a non-synthetic way. 
But as the interview you are about to hear will tell you, it's no scientific method for falling in love. We know a lot about love, but we don't know that just yet. How about I let the expert take over for a bit? You're about to hear an edited version of an interview I had recently with Dr. Arthur Aaron, a research professor in psychology at State University of New York in Stony Brook. Professor Aaron is one of the lead researchers who came up with the now famous 36 questions, and he's been studying passionate and romantic love for a very long time now. We talked about a lot, attachment styles, Dr. Aaron's own years-long marriage and what makes it work, how I, someone who's very anxious in relationships, can rationalize my feelings to better understand my partner and his motivations, and even why you should go skydiving with your partner to keep things interesting. It was a fascinating conversation, more than half of which was lost due to a recording crisis. So Dr. Aaron, being the incredibly kind man he is, hopped back on the phone with me to re-answer some questions. So any discrepancies in audio, that's what's to blame. Now let's get into it. Well, Professor Aaron, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I I came across your work online uh, in a way that I'm sure many people have probably come across your work over the last five or so years. And it was through the New York Times is now pretty famous, very viral at the time piece inspired by your work. Those 36 questions that lead to love. It went crazy on the internet. Everybody was talking about it. And I ended up doing this 36 questions that lead to love with my boyfriend. And it was illuminating to say the least. I think that having that closeness that we sat down with the purpose of achieving has made a difference in our relationship and has informed the way that we communicate going forward. Now, from what I understand, this is not necessarily a formula for falling in love with somebody or falling deeper in love with somebody. It's not the full story, this exercise. There is no scientifically proven method for falling in love with someone, right? That's correct. There's, we know uh, and my lab and others have done a fair amount of research on people who've recently fallen in love and ask what happened. And we have some ideas of what leads to it, but we haven't experimentally tested it. We know a lot about what leads to initial attraction, but that's not quite the same as falling in love. Yes, I have been attracted to a lot of people, but I have only loved a, a small handful of people. So what do we know about the the variables that might create an environment in which love can happen? What are the, maybe the constants or, um, you know, the the things that impact our ability or our openness or our willingness to fall in love? What have you learned about this? Well, of course, when we're talking about love, we're talking about romantic love, not love of children or love of God or love of, your, of, love of money, whatever. Um, and uh, what we know from my research and others is that the most likely circumstances uh, for falling in love is when the other person is reasonably desirable and attractive. They don't have to be extremely, but within the ballpark. And they do something that indicates they like you. That's often the turning point. You know, we often think that playing hard to get is a good thing. Uh, what most of the research shows is it's good to play for others hard to get. That is, you're playing that others have a hard time getting me, but I like you. That can help. Uh, there's a number of other things that can matter. Thinking we have things in common. It turns out it's not that important to have things in common, but to think you have things in common is is pretty important. 
And of course, this brings us to the idea that you can become closer with somebody by engaging in certain activities, not the least of which is participating in something like these 36 questions to try to get to know somebody, to share intimate personal details about yourself, your belief systems, your values, etc., in the hopes, of course, that somebody else will share in kind. And I think this brings us to an interesting juncture in the conversation. Doing the 36 questions that lead to love exercise is only going to bring you closer to someone to bring you to a more intimate place with someone if that someone is also willing to participate at the level that you expect them to or that you would hope to participate yourself. There's a difference between self-disclosure to create an artificial closeness, which I have certainly been guilty of doing before in my previous dating life, There's a difference between that and self-disclosure that is reciprocated by somebody who is sitting down with the intent to listen, to internalize what you're saying, to understand where you're coming from, and to share about themselves as well. Well, when it comes to getting close to someone and using self-disclosure, what we've found uh, that we used to create the 36 questions was from a number of studies that had been done, you know, uh, asking people how they develop their relationship surveys. and uh, But we wanted to develop something that would be experimental. But in any case, we looked, we looked at what was there, and um, it turns out that you need to reveal things, personal things, but not too much too fast, and it needs to be both ways. And it needs to be both ways um, so that you each hear each other. And what we've more recently found out is that a crucial function in getting close to someone and having a good relationship is listening and responding. And responding with showing that you understand, you validate what they're saying, you don't have to agree, but you have to understand why they're feeling it, and that you care for them. This responsiveness is really crucial. And what the 36 questions does is it provides an opportunity for that. You gradually reveal a little bit more and more, and it's both ways, which is crucial. So you're not just talking, you're also listening. And in fact, being heard is so central. And this applies not just to the 36 questions, more importantly, it applies to our general daily life of interacting with people we want to be close with, either developing a new relationship or strengthening and maintaining a current one. Um, Share personal stuff, yes, but also listen. And when you share, you encourage the other person to share. That's why it's good to do it both ways. But be sure you listen and be sure that you show that you understand what they're saying, you validate it, and you care for them. I think in a lot of ways, the decision to show up and to care for someone and to reciprocate and to validate their feelings is very much a choice. It is a choice to show up for somebody every single day. Making that choice is not easy. It's not easy to choose to prioritize something other than yourself. I'm curious about your optimism with that in mind, knowing that this choice is not the easiest choice to make. Are you still optimistic about love despite the statistics that you hear about all the time about you know 50% of marriages ending in divorce? What do you think, having studied this for as long as you have, about the case for being optimistic about the possibility of love? Oh, I think uh, fortunately, we found in our research more than we even expected that uh, it really is possible. Now, it's true, we lose a lot of relationships, but in one U.S. national representative survey we did, 
with my collaborators, um, we found that of those married 10 years or longer, 40% claim to be very intensely in love with their partner. Now, of course, as you were saying, only about half the people were probably still together. That means 20%, but still, 20% claim to be very intensely in love. Now, we wondered, are they just saying that? So we also conducted some brain scan studies. I've done a lot of previous brain scan studies, as have others, and we know what the brain looks like when you're looking at someone you've just fallen intensely in love with. What we did is we recruited people who were married around 20 years and asked to look for people who claimed to be very intensely in love. And we put them in the scanner. And when they looked at pictures of their partner, they showed that same activation uh, in the brain area we call the dopamine reward area that we see with people who just fall. It's not trivial, the percentage that manage it. And we think if people took advantage of the things we know, there could be a much higher percentage. If you had one piece of advice for people who did want to take advantage of the things that we know, what would you say to do? Well, it's there's a number of things, unfortunately. There's a number of things you need to do to make it just adequate. And then there's things you need to do to make it really exciting. Um, you know, the adequate ones are that, you know, you have to be able to communicate well and handle conflict. You have to, and there's tricks you can do for that. We know a lot about that. And you have to be able to handle stress and you have to be able to have good relationships with uh, your in-laws and family. Also, you need yourself. You need to be not, uh, you know, not insecure or anxious or depressed. If you're anxious, insecure, depressed, get therapy. We often blame the other person, but it could be us. But given those things are reasonably in place, there are things you can do to make it really passionate. And one of them is, what I've done much of my research on, is uh, doing exciting, novel, challenging activities with your partner. Not just same old, same old, but new, interesting uh, things. It shouldn't be more than you can handle, but something challenging that you can do that's new. And it can be, you know, anything from, you know, we, we took a, a trip down the down the Grand Canyon that was sort of exciting but also you know took a dance class together you know do things that are new and different um, and then there's several others you know express gratitude let your partner know you you under you you know appreciate the things they do and how much they mean to you and another one a huge one um, uh, Harry Reese and Shelley Gable have done this great research showing Celebrate your partner's successes. When they have something good happen, let them know. Don't just say, oh, that's nice. You know, really, you know, try to get excited to the extent that's reasonable. Turns out that's more important than supporting them when things go badly, which is also important. But uh, celebrating successes is a great thing to do. And, uh, and then having close couple friendships um, with other couples. That really is valuable for, for your relationship. And there you have it, folks, the science behind love, courtesy of the research professor known for it. I could leave it there, or we could run with this a bit. I bet you know which option I'm going to choose. I want to go off script, so I'm going to. In front of me, I have uh, some chicken scratch notes and a couple of listener submissions. And using those things, I'm going to tell you what I know about love. And I want you to think about what you know about love while you listen. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break to hear from the very kind and very lovable folks at Masakon. 
This week is all about love. No matter what shape it takes or what it looks like or sounds like or feels like, love is rooted in connection. And sometimes love grows where just a little bit of liquid courage goes. In my personal experience, a good bottle of wine is as effective as 36 questions in getting someone to fall in love with you. In fact, the very first time my boyfriend Coleman came over to my apartment for dinner, I had a bottle of wine chilling. I uncorked it, I poured us two glasses, we said cheers and obviously looked each other in the eyes, and then next thing I know, he was smitten and so was I. Here's where I should probably tell you that the man is a bit of a wine enthusiast. Coleman chose a wine bar for our very first date. He orders wine from all over the country direct to his apartment. He's known by name at this little wine shop near us in Nolita. He loved the wine that I served that night last summer so much that he immediately pulled out his phone, opened up his wine app, and rated the wine five stars out of five. My choice in wine was five stars, and I truly credit that bottle of wine with jumpstarting our now very happy relationship. Wanna guess what kind of wine I served? Massacon Sauvignon Blanc. I've told you before that Massacon is my wine of choice, and now it's the great love of my life's wine of choice. It's the kind of wine that brings people together. It's the kind of wine that makes memories. It's the kind of wine I serve to the people I love and I want it to be all of that for you too. Masakon is five stars out of five for my very particular boyfriend, but if you want to take someone else's word in addition to just his, Dan Petrosky, the genius behind Masakon, was the San Francisco Chronicle Winemaker of the Year. Masakon has been featured on the top 100 list at Wine Spectator and Wine Enthusiast for four years running, but it's also just $30 a bottle. No additives, no sugar, just really good wine that makes for really good memories with the people who you love. Learn more about Masakon or purchase your own bottle or more likely bottles today on the Masakon website. That's M-A-S-S-I-C-A-N.com or check out the local selection at your favorite fine wine shops and at select Whole Foods nationwide. Thank you as always to Masakon, and trust me, it really is that good. Now, before the break, I told you I was going off script and we're gonna do that in, whew, right, get ready, crack the knuckles, three, two, one. So the first question that I want to consider today is what does it mean to be in love and to feel love? What do I know about love? It's difficult to answer because as I try to document or account for all of the times that I have felt love, I'm almost overwhelmed. I'm I'm very you know incredibly lucky that I have a lot of love in my life. I have a lot of people who love me and even better, I have a lot of people whom I love. But that kind of love varies relationship to relationship. Obviously, today I've spoken at length about my passionate love relationship with my boyfriend Coleman, but I also think that it's it's wrong to dismiss the kinds of love that maybe aren't between two partners in a relationship, in a romantic relationship. The kinds of love that you have with your sister and your parents and your cousins and your family, the kind of love you have with your best friend who's known you your whole life and her children and her family. And I feel so grateful that I have all these different kinds of love in my life that have shown me so much what love is capable of, what being there for somebody makes you capable of. 
It's so deeply important to me to recognize these relationships and to celebrate them. And I'm not somebody who's a big Valentine's Day fan. I think it's, I don't know. I don't, I have never really loved the holiday, but I do love talking about love. I love the idea. And I, I feel like I've said love like a bajillion times already, but I think that the best part of Valentine's Day is not the Russell Stover's or like the high expectations that are rarely if ever met. I think the best part is that it gives us an excuse to sit back and recognize that love is all around us. And I think I just accidentally quoted <laughs> love actually, um, but it is, you know, that's, this is something that is universal and it's beautiful and it has changed my life tremendously. I think in light of the fact that, you know, for the first time in my life, I feel real adult love in a romantic relationship, it's changed everything for me. And I'm welling up thinking about it that over the last year, oh my God, I didn't think I was gonna cry. <laughs> oh, awkward. Over the last year, um, I've fallen in love in a way that I didn't know was possible, in a way that I just can't imagine people are feeling this every single day and still going about their lives. Like it is, it is consuming and it's so beautiful to feel so close with somebody and to know that that person really truly sees you for who you are, but also for who they think you're capable of becoming. And that's been the most gratifying aspect of falling in love is that now all of a sudden there's somebody to share a life with and there's somebody who thinks that you're capable of fantastic, amazing, unbelievable things, not only because they see potential in you, but they see potential in who you could become. And to feel that has been so intense and so incredible. And I'm just, I feel really lucky to have that in my life. And I don't want it to sound like that has solved all of my problems. I, for a long time, thought that finding somebody to love in a romantic way would solve all of my problems. And I have been uh, perhaps rudely awakened to the fact that that's not true. You're still going to have challenges. You're still going to have struggles. You're still going to feel very anxious sometimes in my case. But to have somebody to go through all of that does, you know, it's it's nice to have someone in your corner, whether that's a romantic partner or a friend or a sibling or a parent to feel love and to know that that love is not going anywhere is the best. But it's it's not necessarily easy, <laughs> I will admit. I gotta like blow my nose because <laughs> I can't believe I'm crying talking about my boyfriend on my podcast. How freaking embarrassing. What I was saying is that it's not always easy. You know, choosing love is not necessarily the path of least resistance. And I have been thinking about this a lot lately because my boyfriend Coleman and I are moving in together, which is incredibly exciting. It's a step in our relationship that I feel very prepared to make. I've wanted to do this for a very long time. And I know that we are going to be great together as people who share a home, but it is still a big decision. And I think it's natural with any big decision to have questions and to wonder what it's going to be like and to maybe express just just a little bit of doubt and wonder if this is the right time, to wonder if this is the right choice, to think about, okay, but what if something goes wrong? And in my case, all of that kind of came to a simmer recently when Coleman was over at my apartment and he asked to borrow a screwdriver to fix a shelf in my kitchen. I know, incredibly lucky, right? And I pulled out my screwdriver and I realized that he also has a set of screwdrivers. He has his own tool set, one that's vastly larger than mine, but he has all of his own tools and I have all of my own tools because I've been living independently as a woman for many years now. 
And I realized that we get, we're not gonna have enough room in a New York City apartment to have two sets of tools. So one of us is gonna have to get rid of our tools. And knowing that his is more robust than mine, it's probably gonna be me. And all of a sudden I just had this panic that what if something happens and we break up and not only do I not have a screwdriver, I also don't have my boyfriend. <laughs> and it, it totally wigged me out. But I got to talking about it with um, friends and family and thinking about it, about, you know, that this is a risk. And the general consensus for the people or from the people in my life who I trust the most is that love is always a little bit of a risk. It's at one time, both the most comfortable thing in your life and the thing that makes you the most uncomfortable but it all comes down to making the choice to be uncomfortable. And I started to talk about this a little bit with Dr. Aaron, but the idea that this one big choice to move in with my partner or to not move in with my partner was what was going to define that season of life for me is not necessarily telling the whole story. Yes, that's a big decision, but these big decisions are supported every single day by smaller decisions that we make to pursue love in our lives. In my experience, it's easier to be single. And I, I say that with, as you can tell, I love my boyfriend very much, all the love in the world for him. It's still easier to be by yourself. It's easier to be selfish. It's easier to act in your own ruthless self-interest, but you make the choice every single day to not do that. You make the choice to work on your relationship. You make the choice to ensure that you have a future with somebody who you want to spend the rest of your life with. And those choices, while they might not seem significant day to day, they certainly add up. I think that at the end of the day, this realization helped me to recognize that while I still feel like a kid and I don't know about what my future might look like, I feel ready to make this choice that's going to totally change the trajectory of my life, this choice to share a home with my boyfriend because I've had practice choosing. Love is a choice. It's a choice to pursue love, whether that's romantic love or friendly love or familial love. Every day we get to wake up and choose whether we want to pursue that or not. And adding that level of agency back into the equation makes me feel so much more settled in the fact that this is the right choice for me right now. And I'm so lucky that it is, but I think we often expect that love is something that just happens to us. And as Dr. Aaron explained in the interview, and as I have come to understand on my own in the last couple of minutes of me ranting about this, love is not something that the fates just hand you. To some extent, sure, it is. I think there are people who are put in our lives for very specific reasons, and I, I surrender to those reasons wholly all the time. But I think there is also an element of self determination and, and agency that we often undervalue, that we get to choose who we surround ourselves with and we get to choose who we spend our time with and we get to choose love. We get to choose to show up as friends, as family, as partners. It takes work, but it's work that is worth putting in. But what do I know? <laughs> I think I have only been in love, probably counting this one twice in my life. Yeah twice. <laughs> Being in love is different than telling somebody you love them. That I have learned. Um, but I will admit readily that there's a lot I don't know about love. One of my very favorite books, though, is called Everything I Know About Love. It's by Dolly Alderton. And it's this just incredibly profound yet simple and relatable traipse through her 20s. 
as Dolly is trying to figure out everything she knows about love, about friendships and romantic relationships and finding the right person to spend your life with or not finding the right person to spend your life with. And I remember reading that book actually just before I met my boyfriend, Coleman, and it changed everything for me. It allowed me to sit back and recognize that there's a lot I don't know But there's also a lot I do know. There's a lot that I've experienced that has allowed me to have standards. It's allowed me to know what I want. That's allowed me to know what I don't want. And that's so incredible that these life experiences help us to figure out what's good for us and what's not. But I still don't know everything about love. And I think that's one of the most beautiful aspects of living and of loving is that it unfolds itself to you constantly. So With that in mind, I decided to ask some of you what you know about love, because I thought it would be an incredibly interesting collection of how our past informs our future, of what our takes on love show, about how fantastic and moving and challenging and incredible it is. So without further ado, I am excited to share everything I know about love from some of you. First up, we have Matthew Gatozzi. Experiencing love is probably one of the most rewarding parts about life, but it's not actually always easy. There's so many different types of love. It's not just romantic love. There's kind of that brotherly love with friends. There's family love. And each of these loves or types of loves has different dynamics and different challenges. But one thing that transcends any type of love is commitment. And there's something so satiating about being committed to another person and the depth that you get to have when you can connect with another human emotionally, spiritually, and go deeper and get to learn more about their life and how they see the world. And being able to experience that, experiencing somebody else's vantage point with you, with yourself, is truly the best thing ever. And next, Sarah Reynolds. What do I know about love? I'm not sure no is the right word as someone still in my early 20s. But in my experience, love is about safety and acceptance. Love isn't about how long you've known someone or how long you've technically been present on the perimeters of their lives. Love is about who you call when you get the text that your family member's in the hospital. Love is about who you can depend on to door dash you snacks when you're having a bad day. Love is about who will listen to you talk for over an hour about something that excites you, even if they don't really understand, just because they care and they enjoy seeing your face light up. Love is about who celebrates the happiest and best parts of you and who sits with you during your darkest moments, accepting all of it. And finally, Allie Ben-Levy from the Smooth Operations and Creator Services team, one of my very favorite people to work with. Weirdly enough, I learned everything that I know about love by watching my parents get divorced. Ironic, right? By that, I mean I watched them love me and my siblings unconditionally and make sure that this big, seemingly scary thing didn't come between any of us. I watched them learn to love themselves more independent of any person and just continuously preach self-love by making hard but right decisions. 
Um, I've been grateful to feel that type of loyalty and just general lightness um, in friends and partners and because of watching my parents um, and myself too. I hope that wasn't too cheesy for you. And I thought it would be important to include Dr. Aaron's take. So here's everything Dr. Aaron, who studies love, knows about love. Oh, it comes from what we call our self-expansion theory, that love is an intense desire to unite with another person. And a lot of the excitement about love is that intensity of that desire. And that's one of the reasons doing exciting activities with people over time is it reminds you of that excitement of that person responding to you and forming that relationship and connecting that union. It's so deeply special that this is what we get to do, that we get to have love in our lives is so beautiful and that we get to choose it despite language barriers, cultural barriers, opposites attract, despite all of it we still get to choose love. And I am so grateful that this community has shown me love that I never knew was possible. This sounds super corny, but I'm gonna say it anyway. When I started this show last year, I never thought that the support I would get would be so passionate, that people would fully be down to have hard conversations and that they would be willing to share those conversations with me. It's an incredible, incredible privilege that I'm so grateful to have. And I know that a lot of what I have come to understand about love has come from all of you. You have shown me love and support even on my hardest days and my hardest episodes. And I'm so grateful for that. So I think that as we come to a close today, I just want to reiterate that love is so many things. And I think it's impossible to define in singular terms. Love is sneaking a Reese's into your girlfriend's work bag because you know she loves them. Love is checking in on your childless, unmarried friend every single week, even though you have a toddler and another on the way. Love is making their favorite meal. And love is both so simple and so incredibly vastly complex. At least, that's the love in my life. And I want to know what love is like in your life. How does it manifest? Where does it manifest? Is it something that can be engineered? Or does it happen without our own interventions? I want you to think about love this week. And more importantly, I would love it if you would talk about love this week and let me know what you come up with. I want to hear from you. You know where to find me on social media, I'm sure. But if you want to shoot me an email, you can. My email is kinsey at thinkingiscool.com. I'm Kinsey Grant. And remember, thinking is cool. And so are you. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody.